0: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Benall. Hello out there ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Banal. Welcome to this week's edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 1. We continue this week with Peter Robbins, Part 2 of 2. An amazing conversation, I was listening to it earlier today while I was getting it ready, and I really just stopped doing everything and ended up just listening and enjoying the the interview, So I think everyone's really going to like this, this second half of the interview as much as they like the first half. I've gotten a lot of great feedback for it, so thanks a lot for that. A little bit about Peter Robbins, if you're jumping in here at part 2 of 2 and haven't jumped back yet for part 1 of 2, Peter Robbins has been involved in UFO studies for more than 25 years as a researcher, investigator, writer, lecturer, activist, and author. He is a board member of the Bud Hawkins Intruders Foundation and is co-author of the British bestseller Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Bentwaters-Woodbridge UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation. Peter is a current contributor to Phenomena Magazine, UFO Magazine, UFO Report Japan, Fate Magazine, magazine Phenomenamagazine.com, and UFOdata.uk, amongst many other publications and websites. He's also served as Art Director and Investigator for the New York City-based Scientific Bureau of Investigation, a national police and civilian UFO research organization, and as Editorial Assistant on Blue Memorandum for Parliament's House of Lords debate on UFOs in January of 1980. He was also the Research Assistant on United Nations Secretary General's report for the establishment of a UN UFO department. He's a native New Yorker, and he's this week's guest on Banal of America Audio, we continue the conversation we had last week. We uh, pick it up here with about another hour of talk on *Left at East Gate*. Not only the Reynoldsham Forest Incident, but also what happened throughout the process of creating the book, and ultimately the uh, post-book reaction from ufology and the UK and, and the world at large. Peter also lets us know about the updated and expanded edition of *Left at East Gate* that's scheduled for publication by Cosimo Press sometime this December. Uh, we'll have the information out to the com visitors as soon as we get it from Peter, so hopefully people can grab this book. I know I'll be picking up a copy of this updated and expanded edition, because I'm really interested in what's going to be in there. This interview was recorded on September 5th, 2005, Labor Day. Peter Robbins, Part 2 of 2, on Been All of America Audio, Season 1.
1: Um, you take the first trip to England, that's a pretty big part of the story, too. Mm-hmm. Um one thing that stuck out to me was you're riding in the cab, and the cab driver, he's pretty skeptical, and he's, he kind of shits on you guys, or <laughs> shits on the story. Sure. Like, they were out in the woods smoking pot. and you're Yeah, there, oh, sure. You're there with Larry, and that had to happen more, more often than just that one time in situations like that. What was Larry's reaction when someone, because he was, you know, he experienced it. What yeah. was it like when someone was like, those guys are full of shit? It was interesting. He was at his best at those moments. It wasn't like, oh yeah, you you know, you're wrong, you're a lie. You know, <laughs> I was there. He actually um, impressed me very much. Um, he he has a he's a very people-oriented person, and he's great at chatting people up. And I've heard him, you know, more than once say, well, you know, let me tell you, I was there. It really happened. And let me give you some particulars. Um, I think he, you know, he's a smart guy. He's pretty worldly. He understands that that's human nature. Uh, it was, you know, the media and the forces that be worked very hard, as they always have, to make this a laughable subject. Yeah. Um, you know, ha ha, flying saucers, little green men, that kind of thing. But you know, in just the opposite way, when we first went on base that first night, and he chatted up that uh, uh, security cop who essentially was him, you know, eight years before. Mm-hmm and says without any prompting, you know, my friend and I are working on a book about some stuff that happened to me in the service here. He's never been in that service, so he doesn't know. You and I know. You know, when you get to a new base, there's legends, myths, stories, and it's the first thing the new the new guys are told by the old guys. What do you know here? And the kid got very serious and said, there's only one story here, and that's, I don't know how you feel about It got a little defensive, but UFO, situation It was real. You know, it was hushed up. It was very serious. Guys were sent all over the place, and some bad things happened, and, you know, we take it very seriously. and It was the first time ever, after eight or nine months, hearing this kid say that, that I had heard anybody back up the story, um, completely independently, on their own, without any prompting, and... It was the first of many, many, many guys that I met that backed up the story in earnest. Um, And as you also know, the most dramatic part of that first visit over was much to my horror, although a lot of people think, oh, how cool, you had an experience too. We had our own multiple UFO incident there, and that blew my mind. Um, I had so prized being the objective chronicler, and all of a sudden, I am in deep shit. I am part of the story. That did not make me happy. And we audio taped those things while they were happening to us, and those tapes, I should say, have been voice stress analyzed, and there is no, you know, acting going on. Um, We saw an extraordinary variety of things that night culminating with a thing appearing in the field that we were in, and I was very anxious, I was frightened, and Larry was angry, and um, as far as the things kind of coming back, and at the same time, he was um, extremely reflective and almost philosophical, like they're here. I told you they were here, and you had to see it for yourself. The first night, I mean, I agonized. I agonized over whether or not to even include it. And we had like an hour and a half on tape where we are freaking out. And it was still going on when we left. Yeah. I mean, we got to England the day before. We were still had jet lag. It was our first trip of our first research trip um, of many. First night. And I was even had a moment where I thought to myself, hmm, Maybe if I say it happened on the third night, and then I caught myself in a second and said, you know, you're writing nonfiction here. Yeah. You lie once, you're a liar, and that's it. Yeah. And you can't just say, oh, yeah, and by the way, on the first night, we saw 30 UFOs, <laughs> uh, and then jump. You've either got to deal with this in-depth yeah. or not. And ultimately, after basically weighing it for months, and Larry said, it's, you know, your, your call, uh, I decided to go with it. I spent months transcribing it. I listened to certain parts of that tape 50 times easy oh, to make wow. sure I had every syllable right because I knew somebody's going to call me on it. Yeah. And so that transcript is, um, it's very, very, uh, it captures oh, what okay. happened to us in the field that night, no uncertain terms. I was not happy about that at all. I'm there with, again, the most controversial witness. Uh, we're five miles, six miles from the site of the original incident. And what do you know, our first night, I see 30 UFOs, oh boy, what a coincidence, gee whiz. I mean, I'd call me a liar, but I wasn't lying, it happened. Now, were your fears that that would affect the story justified? Did that hurt, do you think, um, you know, you were all upset that it happened, but did did that sort of come to fruition? You know, that's interesting, not really. Um, I made it very clear in the research community that if anybody wanted to call us on that, I would loan them if it was, you know, a a responsible situation. uh, I would loan uh, somebody with the credentials to do VSA, voice stress analysis work, original tapes to verify uh, the genuine stress in the voices and the reality of the situation. And ultimately, several years after the book came out, we were called on that by two guys that did VSA. And they ran them and said, yeah, you know, best we can say this is the truth, is you guys were experiencing it or thought you were experiencing it. And even, you know, the late uh, Phil Class, the king of debunkers, um, never brought this up. I never saw in the literature, even the few bad reviews that we got, uh, Our reviews overwhelmingly were terrific for the book, very flattering. Uh, Nobody called us on that. Maybe the thought was, that's just too ridiculous to lie about. And although I was not a terribly well-known person in the field, I'm proud to say nobody has ever called me a liar. Nobody has ever accused me of fabricating or enhancing or spinning information, not ever. And it's something I pride myself on, and I don't. Um, so I think a little bit of my reputation helped there, but um, it happened, it was real, and there's no question about it. The scariest part of the thing uh, I wanted to mention was the scream. <gasps> and you can. I, I'm going to tell you, Tim, I, even just hearing you say that, <laughs> for my hair's going up on my arms. <laughs> and on those first-generation audio tapes, and we're saying on the tapes, I bet you can't hear that, you can hear it. You can hear the screams oh. coming from the woods, and it's like not quite a human sound. It's—I uh, won't even try to imitate it. But oh, it's, it freaked me out just reading it. No, oh, it was awful. Although I did enjoy the uh, the Woody Allen joke. That, uh, yeah, <laughs> I really, I got a real kick out of that. Uh, well, nervous humor exactly, is exactly yeah. such interesting stuff, and you do bring up an interesting point. Cause in stress you know, some of us, depending on our personalities, we will, you know, kind of lean back on black humor. It's all yeah. we have. Yep. Yep. And a year or so after that, I had taken a summer teaching post in, in rural Oklahoma, and I was um, put up with a local family, and I liked them a lot. The, uh, the man was a retired um, petroleum engineer, Phillips Petroleum, and he was, you know, like engineers, he was all facts, and um, he found my story interesting, but I can see his eyebrows sort of rhetorically moving up. And there is a sound in these tape recordings that I, I, I think I even list in the transcriptions. It is the click of my Zippo lighter. We're smoking our way through this thing like banshees. And he said, you know, I have a problem with that. I said, what do you mean, Bill? He said, well, you know, you're smoking while this is going on. I said, and? He said, well, you're taking the time to smoke cigarettes. That's not my picture of somebody in stress. I said, Bill, are you a smoker? (laughs) Uh, I said, have you ever smoked? He said, no. I said, talk to your friends who are smokers. Uh, It is a way of relieving stress, and often in high stress is when smokers smoke the most. Um, And we we even joked at that point that we should have gotten a grant from Reynolds uh, Tobacco because we went through a lot of cigarettes at that point. I just recently um, quit smoking, and um, hopefully this will stick this time. But um, uh, my smoking habit is exacerbated by this tremendously, and Larry is still wrestling with it. Um, But, yeah, those screams were absolutely haunting. Um, I'll never forget them. Now, now after this whole thing happened, you guys went there, you checked it out, uh, Larry took you through the whole thing. Then you came back to the States. And uh, it seemed like the book kind of fell apart there. Yes, it did. What happened there? Well, what happened was I came back with way more than I had thought humanly possible. Um, I was nervous. I was anxious. Um, I was excited, but in a really almost hysterical way. Um, I was beginning to feel I was getting in over my head. Um, and. We got back at the end of February, and in April, Larry came to the city, and I I, I recreate this in the book, but essentially what he says to me is, I felt that if I told you everything that I thought or that I knew when I enrolled you in this project, that you would not have signed on, and you wouldn't have gone to England, and we wouldn't have gotten started on this. So... Let me complete some things here. Um, When I said a guy I knew, that was me. Um, And I have to tell you, a few weeks before we went to to England, I was yet once again, as I've been several times since this happened, um, approached by and met with uh, representatives of the National Security Agency who said um, in so many words, so we understand you're getting started on your book and you can roll this guy Robbins to work with you. We've checked him out. You know, you can do it if you want. Who's going to believe your book anyway? And I was frightened and enraged that the National Security Agency had run a background check on me. How dare they? And that they cleared me to write a book that, you know, it's okay if you want to write a book with him. I was furious and I was very frightened. And I also, there was the variable that Larry could be a psychotic liar and that this hadn't happened or it had happened and that he hadn't met with the agency, and he made that up. And, well, I was on overload. I was on complete overload. At this point, I also knew about, you know, the fourth night, where he is subdued chemically and taken below the pace. And, holy Christ, I was freaking. Yeah. And I made it very clear to him in very flat language that I had had it at least for a while. And I backed out, and he said, I understand, and I hope you'll come back to this, but I understand, and I'm sorry for any grief I've caused you. he was he was hurting, man, and he, now I was. yeah, and I wouldn't speak to him for months at that point, but you know, I couldn't walk away from the whole subject. I spent a lot of time at the main branch of the New York Library there doing mm, supporting research, but slightly off topic, uh, came back to it. But by the end of um eighty eight I was infused, I was like, you know, um, a zealot at that point, and I knew this was the most important story I might be involved in in my life, and I was already sort of distancing myself from friends and family, and I'm a pretty social and gregarious guy, I'm usually kind of enjoyable to be around, good <laughs> I stories. Think you're a great character, yeah, you're a nice guy. I've, I've personally been, i personally met you, hung out with you, that. that's true. But I was changing, and I wasn't such a nice guy, and romantic relationships that I was pursuing fell apart. I was got into this real neurotic dynamic of, you know, um, kind of like the old Groucho Marx quote of, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Yeah, yeah. Um. I didn't want any woman to get involved with me that I really cared for because that would be irresponsible of me. It could really hurt their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when this was going on, um, the good case in point, um, I was dating a wonderful woman who I was quite in love with. Um, she was Irish here on a green card and not only worked at the UN, but worked in the office of the Secretary General. Um, she's still with the UN and um, that relationship self-destructed and I became quite unhinged in terms of just sort of losing a lot of my, um, not losing my good friends, but holding them away in some cases for years. I mean, the good ones stayed with me, but um, I pushed a lot of people away and uh, I come from a very close family. My family was concerned about me. And uh, I had sort of lost my career fix at a point, and um, I was really kind of coming off my moorings a bit. But the one thing that I was stuck on and committed to was seeing this thing through, or at least doing my best to see it through. And ultimately, um, much to um, both of our amazements, in a way, we not only finished the book, but we sold the book and got it published and got it out there in two countries. And it changed things in Britain. Uh, during this time that you were you were going through all this thing, um, you allude to, an, uh, I don't know if it's another book or something, but it's called Confidential. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very good. And, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever asked me about that. Um, What's yeah, the start what of this? Is, Yeah. Um, more and more, I was aware, and it's on the record, I'm not speaking out of school here, Larry was not just struggling with what had happened to him. He was drinking a lot and not showing it. Um, he was aggressive, um he could be uh, you know, emotionally abusive, he could threaten, you know, you'd get the feeling that potentially he could be violent, he never was with me. Um his marriage is going to hell. Uh I, I literally watched it self destruct his first marriage. Um also I realized that whether or not you know, he was everything he seemed to be and was somebody that certain people would rather not have here or whether or not he just, you know, drank too much one night and crashed his car or, you know, had some kind of alcohol-related physical crisis, he could die. And I began to more and more feel that if he did, I I don't know what would happen to me. I mean, I was feeling emotionally and mentally like I had to have something to confirm that my stress was real and it wasn't from my imagination. Yeah. And as you know, um, it was the only time I ever did this, but several times in 88, I think three times, I tape recorded him on the phone without telling him. And I led him into um, saying certain things and putting them on the record so that I'd have them in case he vaporized one day and I could at least say, look, I wasn't crazy. You know, I believe this guy, and this is what he said, and here's the tapes. Confidential was my way of trying to preserve my sanity and create a record that, if anything should happen to me, that my family would know what I had really gotten into. And what it was, in essence, was totally separate from my work on the manuscript and my research on the aspects of the case. I created an entirely separate book in a loose-leaf binder in an edition of one. And then I made two copies of it. I made several copies of these tapes. Uh, I put one in my vault in the bank. Um, One I physically hid. Uh, One I gave to a very good friend uh, for safekeeping. And emotionally, it was a really good thing for me um, because it allowed me to have what I'd laughingly call, in this case, a little peace of mind to move forward and know that at least I was on the record should anything happen to Larry or me. And um, I still have um, that copy of Confidential that I kept uh, and those tapes, even with, you know, sort of a note um, written, I didn't mean to be macabre, but written to be read. In the Um, event of your demise? Yes, correct. Huh. Yes, correct. Wow. And um, it allowed me to go forward. It also gave me what I needed to later that year in 88, possibly 89, I'd have to check the book for it actually, to say to Larry months after, I have to tell you what I did in 88 and then laid it out for him. Yeah. I recorded you on these three times and blah, blah, blah. And I remember him on the phone just being quiet for a moment and saying, I absolutely understand and would have done the same thing in your case. And, you know, those conversations are also um, uh, the, the best parts of those transcriptions are in Left at Eastgate and they are, as far as I'm concerned, available to responsible researchers and um, they're part of the record of the book. Yeah, that's what Confidential is about. And so what ultimately got you back into the book? Uh, you, you had fallen out of uh, the whole thing and then yeah. all of a sudden we sort of uh reinfused to, yeah. to get this project done. What, yep. what happened? Well, it wasn't any one thing. It was just I realized that I had gotten in over my head and I got used to it. <laughs> uh, I realized that if I was serious about being a good investigative writer, I was never going to find a better story in my life. If I had gone this far... And I thought, okay, we're a year or so into it, so, you know, how much longer can it be thinking it would be another year or so? Ha, ha, (laughs) Um, That if I walked away from this, it would haunt me the rest of my life. I'm not a quitter, although I'm not, you know, stupid and obsessive. And if I get into something that is way beyond me, I would hope I'd have the good sense to back out of it. In this case, though, I felt if I didn't complete it or give it my best shot, I'd regret it. It it would haunt me. I would It'd be something to not be proud of. Yeah. Plus, there's a, kind of a fatalistic aspect of, well, what the hell else do I have to do with my <laughs> life right now? I've kind of screwed up the rest of it. i am um, lost my teaching position. I've sort of walked away from it and didn't bother to get it back. Um, I've drifted out of my theater work. I'm not painting and drawing right now. I, I really, I wanted to finish the job that we had started. And by that point, almost begrudgingly, Tim. I, I had no intention or even desire of this guy being a friend of mine. I just, it was a professional acquaintance and, you know, obviously, um, you know, uh, somebody who had certain problems and I was not interested in becoming, you know, uh, a pal, although, you know, we were friendly, of course. But I really grew to admire him. Um, I saw the other side of him, too, when he'd show it. Uh, of a really decent, big-hearted guy who had tremendous principles and values and a good heart, and we had things in common in terms of our taste in pop music. and So ultimately, I got myself back into it. It wasn't any one dramatic thing. It was that desire that people have to yeah. finish what they start. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so then you're sort of working back on the book again, and uh then enters uh, one of the most important people in the whole saga, that's Colonel Holt. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. You all of a sudden, you you have his number, you decide to call him. Um, why then? Had you been waiting a while? Well, up until I called him, he was still in active service. Um, okay. This had happened to him in when he was Lieutenant Colonel, 1980. And it wasn't until... 91 or 92, I forget exactly, maybe 93, that he retired. And I had wanted to speak to this guy like crazy. I mean, better? But, frankly, I was a little intimidated. Um, I didn't know how I should reach him. I also was very aware in life that you only have one chance to make a first impression. Mm-hmm. I knew there was no love, love lost between him and Larry and that I was now working with Larry, so maybe he saw me as the enemy or something. Sure. But it wasn't until I had mentioned to some mutual friend uh, in the field that I really wanted to speak to this guy. And he said, hey, he wants to speak to you too. I <laughs> said, what? I said, yeah, I, I know um, for a fact that he knows that you're working on this book with Warren and he wants to talk to you. I was like, shit, <laughs> I got his number. And um, I remember before making that first call of quite a number, Um, I laid out quite a working sort of whole desktop of notes to refer to should he try to, you know, catch me off guard on something. Uh, I was not going to play all my cards of things that I know. Uh, He did not know, for example, that I had um, not just some of Larry's service record, but some of Larry's original service record. Uh, Also, I knew through the grapevine that he was badmouthing Larry and saying, that he was a wannabe, that he might not have been involved at all, that, um, you know, uh, there were other factors and that he had been jerked around. And, you know, and I called him. And he was home in Woodbridge, Virginia, and was very cordial on the phone and immediately tried to get me off guard by saying, um, i trying to remember his quote, um, just, you know, be careful. Uh, he ain't what you think he is. He wasn't involved. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention, too, is uh, as soon as you get a hold of him, it sounds like he's very quick to try and run down Larry. Immediately, immediately. And, I mean, I'm looking at his service record. I see how involved he is. I've got the dates of when he was posted on base. I mean, I know when he was assigned his weapon. I know... A lot of stuff that Halt doesn't know, I know. Yeah. And I'm not really interested in telling him all that. I'm just interested in letting him know I'm working on this book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm open-minded. My first priority is the truth and not, you know, getting defensive at all, uh, that wherever this takes me, it's going to take me. And, um, you know, um, we left off that call, and I should say that call and my other calls with him, I began um, by saying, I would like your permission to tape record this call. I will, of course, send you a copy of this tape recording. I would like your permission to use part or full transcriptions from this and any other conversations that we have. And he was very forthcoming on that, sure, no problem. Um, so when I called him back a second time, which was only a week or two later, I had Larry there by my side. Yeah. And. I caught him off guard, <laughs> and told him that, I said, would you like to speak to him? And he hadn't spoken to him. They hadn't spoken since they are in the service together. Yeah. And they were both rather cordial with each other, you know, as well as you can be on the defensive. And um, I said, Mr. Hall, if we can get ourselves down to your part of the country, would you meet with us? Sure, I'd be glad to. And at that point, we began to plan um, a trip south, and the uh, first part of it for me was going down to South Carolina, and spending a week working on um, the manuscript thus far with our wonderful and very dedicated uh, editor. And then I met Larry in Washington, and we stayed with uh, several interesting folks. The first part of the trip we stayed with um, an extraordinary guy, Gus Russo, uh, who wrote a book called um, that came out so um, gosh for maybe four years ago, called Live by the Sword, five years ago. It's a remarkable book on um, um, what Gus felt was the dynamics behind the Kennedy assassination. And Gus was one of the preeminent Kennedy assassination researchers, great guy too. Um, Spent some time with uh, um, another researcher down there. We met with Chuck DeCaro, uh, and ultimately... Uh, of course, I called Mr. Halt when we got down there, and he wasn't quite as cordial this time around. <laughs> I um, did not let him know that we had only a limited amount of time down there, and had yeah. already bought our return tickets placed close to the vest, and can you meet with us this night, this night, this night, this night, nope, 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 and starting to feel my heart drop there, and hmm. again, not trying to lose you know, the straightness in my voice, and Well, how about, uh, is there any time you can? And, uh, well, Tuesday. We were leaving on Wednesday. And um, he was the one who set the time and place. And it was a great moment, especially for a nonfiction writer, where you're talking to this semi-legendary former military figure caught up in this huge drama. Yeah. And he says on the phone with real military bearing, you know where the Pentagon is? And I found myself saying, yes, sir. And I'm not... I don't usually say, sir. I've never been in the military. I am mean, yeah. fairly informal. He said, okay, right across the street from the Pentagon, there is a mall, shopping mall. It's called Pentagon City. See me in the food court at 1 o'clock, at 1.30, whenever. It's like, whoa. And we were there. And uh, we had another guy with us to be a neutral observer. Uh, we went into the food court, and for the next hour and 20 minutes, we had um, one of the most impacting conversations and listened to what he had to say and he had us turn off that recorder several times and told us things off the record, and um, he did something after the fact, and he he said to Larry, he said to him on the phone, he said to him in person, I can't say whether you were there or involved or not, we were in different parts of the forest, we would have been doing different things, but you have to understand, you know, you've got a reputation, and I've got to cover all the bases here, and I've got to be skeptical, and he absolutely understood, but Shortly after he retired, and I discuss all of this at the end of the book, as you know, yeah. he he was invited for the first time to speak at a UFO conference that was in England. And he did, and was well received. And after the fact, like is the way it is at conferences, uh, he was approached by several guys who chatted with him informally after. And at one point one of them said, what about Larry Warren? And Halt said to him, wasn't involved, wasn't there, want to be something like that. Yeah not knowing uh, that this guy was actually a friend of Larry's and mine, who called me immediately, and I went ballistic. I was furious, and my feeling was, all right, you know, you've just lied. You have said something to these guys that you have said to Larry and I that you cannot possibly know the truth on. You have also um, told us things off the record that confirm your interest in how serious uh, he was involved in this. And now you're saying the opposite. So screw the insinuation that I was going to keep this stuff off the record. Off the record, I am now going to say it. And the fact of the matter is, had he wanted to, he could have instituted legal action or um, bad me um, to the best of my knowledge. He's never said anything bad about me, and he certainly never had his attorney contact mine. Um And among the things that he told us off the record, which are now very much on the record, which he has never denied, is that he was interested in Larry saying that the uh, NSA had grabbed his records and that they were very interested in him. Uh, He confirmed that through contacts in the Pentagon, he found that that was absolutely the truth. And he told us face-to-face about these um, beams of light from these unknowns penetrating down into the Arden Bunkers. and adversely affecting the ordinance, and I decided, well, you want to play at this? Then um, I will make this material public, and he has never, ever denied it, any of the things that I put on the record. I wish him well. I have a lot of respect for him, and I know Larry does, too, but you can't do that, and to the best of my knowledge, um, he's been very careful about doing it since. Yeah, so you haven't, like, talked to him since the book came out or anything like that? I'm trying to think. Since the book came out, we sent him a copy, of course. Um, I I think I spoke to him once, um, but only in passing. If yeah, so it wasn't uh, like he wasn't outraged or no, like that. no, not to, and I I certainly I I not certainly. There's a very good chance had he been angry or upset or uh, you know. Um, Felt in any way violated by this. that it would have come back to through yeah. the it In no way right has it. No, yeah. I wish him well. Now, when you meet him, um, you're pretty cynical about uh, witnesses coming forward. Uh, you kind of say something like, well, um, "Why would I, I wouldn't encourage anybody to come forward now? Yeah. Uh, why bother? Why go put through the, the trouble and all that?" Do you still okay. agree with that sort of uh, stance, or mm-hmm. are you a little more encouraging to people to start it? I'm very circumspect about it. If somebody has had an experience, especially in a military context, and they feel righteous indignation, they feel compelled to make what happened to them uh, uh, public, they owe it to themselves and to the people they love to educate themselves about what happens often to people that put themselves on this spot like Larry and others have. Yeah. And if they are all right with that and if they have some familial support, etc., God bless them, you know, absolutely trumpet it from the highest trees. If you are not sure, don't do it. Or, you know, you can always go forward, but you can't take go the back. time. That's right, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> so I, I, I would, by all means, um, caution anyone who uh, feels that... Uh, you know, they're considering doing this to give it a tremendous amount of thought and reflection and consult with people whose opinion you respect before doing it. And if you do it, do it right and, you know, uh, put it on the record in every possible way that you can and um, back it up in every way you can and ideally wait until, you know, you have whatever you need or can get your hands on to, if humanly possible, back up your allegations. So, um, I, I think that's best left in the hands of the individual. I, you know, if it was a perfect world, I'd I've, I've encourage everybody that's had an experience like this to come forward and put it on record and help, you know, create a, a public outcry for uh, a release of the truth. Which I'm more and more cynical that we are going to see through our governments, um, it's just not going to happen unless their hand is forced in some way that we can only imagine. But um, uh, I have only respect for people, especially military folks that have had experiences that don't want to come forward and put it on the record. And uh, in the updated version of Left at Gate, you'll see some, just that, some tremendous um, additions to the public record of individuals that had experiences that support Larry's, were aspects of it, or interestingly, other similar experiences when assigned to the same base before Larry was there, and in some cases, some years after. So, um, you know, stuff continues. Um, But that's a very good question, and depending on the individual, I'd answer it in those two different ways. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, destabilization. You call it now like silly fucking games. Yeah and how they messed with some of the people who were doing the research and, and uh, the whistleblowers and stuff. Do you experience much of that? I didn't, um, but they did jerk me around a bit. Uh, they, in quotes, whoever they are. Yeah. Um, I know for a fact, and it was another thing I forgot to add, and those, um when you had asked me about that period of time after we came back from the first trip to England. Um, I had a friend who's very savvy technologically. And he ran some checks on my telephone line. Yeah. And I'm living in the middle of New York City, and said um, I was hearing these weird clicks and taps that I was just I couldn't, you know, I never heard them before. Yeah. But um, I guess it's it's the way that I am. My first reaction was not, oh my God, the government's tapped my phone. My first reaction was. I live in the middle of New York City. It's New York Telephone, Jesus Christ. You know, it's amazing you don't hear crap on the phone lines more often. (laughs) But what he did was he did all these impedance registrations and things and did it several times and said in, in his own way that he felt that my phone was being irregularly monitored and that he had no idea who it was or why they were doing it. And my first reaction was, what are you talking about? I... Why would they let me know with all these obvious sounds on the phone? The whole idea is to surreptitiously get information and find out who I'm talking to and what I'm saying. Yeah. He said, no, that's only one of two reasons that your phone would be monitored. The other is to freak you out, to let you know they're monitoring it. Yeah. This is also when my mail occasionally would start to be opened and then quote-unquote officially resealed. Uh, the nice folks that you meet in the book, the wonderful Warnock family in Suffolk. Oh, yeah, I want to mention them. Yeah. You go over there to visit. Yeah, I'll be seeing them. I'll be spending Christmas with them. And uh, so will most of my family this time. I'm very pleased to say they're like family. I love them. Um, but their mail was starting to get opened. Oh, wow. And yes. Oh, yes. Wow. And their phones were starting to be monitored. Oh, and geez. that's a fact that they will concern and confirm in no uncertain terms to anybody that asks. Huh. And these are very down to earth people. They're wonderful people who um, had the courage to stick by us and say, we're part of the story now, too. And there's no way we're not going to back you up on this stuff. They're just sensational. Um, but these things started to pile up on me and they upset me very much. Um, they also changed the way that I use the phone for quite a number of years. Uh, you know, when you think that there's somebody listening in, you're a lot more careful about what you say. Yeah. And there are certain people, and it's usually the people you care about the most that you say the least, Are you're starting to sound more disconnected or, you know, like you don't really want to talk to them. And I mean, This is way pre-cell phone era, and there was many times I'd head out onto the street with a a pocket full of quarters and go to the nearest payphone and make my calls. (laughs) Um, No joke. And actually, the kind of postscript on this sort of behavior was I came to understand through channels over the years that when I would go to England, when I would pass through customs control, passport control, yeah, you know, allegorically bells and whistles would go off somewhere, and my be, my my movements, uh, my whereabouts would be monitored irregularly oh. when I was in the United Kingdom. Wow! And where it all came home to me was um, on our book tour um, when we were in Suffolk, and it was a real high point because we were speaking. Uh, in Woodbridge, which is the village nearest to where this happened, the most substantial village near, one with a bookstore. And we were doing a book signing. And at the book signing, a woman named Brenda Butler showed up. And Brenda was one of the three original researchers on this case, a courageous, interesting gal who, um, you know, was the first to say that some of the information they put in their book had been manipulated or shaped by the forces that be. But um, they had their ear to the ground the day after this happened. I mean, there's a local gal. Yeah. And um, she came up to me and she said, I have a bone to pick with you. And she did not look happy at all. Yeah, And we took her out to lunch uh, with the book dealer. And over lunch, she turned to me and she said, you know, uh, I, I wasn't kidding. I really have something I've got to talk to you about that really made me angry. And um, then proceeded to say, you remember when you first wrote to me and I had written to her early on in 87 and suggested that, you know, we start to uh, exchange information. I was now working with Larry, who she certainly knew well and spent time with. And she was open to that and uh, let her know that we were going to be coming to the UK and all this. And um, I wrote her again when I got back, but I never heard back from her. And again, I was very preoccupied and people's lives go on. I wasn't going to harp on it, and I never heard from her again, and she never heard from me again. Anyway, it's now like nine years later, and we're sitting over lunch, and she said, do you remember when you came to England for the first time to do research in February 88? Yes, of course. Okay. You know, you had been here a day or two, whatever, and you contacted me and introduced yourself on the phone and said, you know, um, I would... um, you know, we really should meet and talk, and I agreed. I thought that was a very good idea, and you set the time and place, and it was that pub about a mile and a half from where you were staying, the cherry tree, and um, I agreed to meet you there, and I showed up, and not only did you not show up, you never had the courtesy to call me, and um, frankly, um, oh, no, wait, hold it a second, let me just... Right, right, okay, right, to call me, and um, I was pissed off, and when you wrote to me, I didn't respond, and that's why. And Tim, I'm listening to her say this, and I am getting very anxious, and I look at her and I say, Brenda, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the gist of it, um, I hear you, uh, I appreciate, I, I, I'm convinced you're telling me the truth as you know it, um, if you get to know me better, as I hope you will, you'll find out. I am not the kind of person who would leave you hanging like that, even if it was just a social situation. That's not the way I was brought up. I would have called and canceled that appointment or rescheduled. Brenda, I never called you. Yeah. And I saw her get visibly pale, and she said, oh, my God, I believe you. And we looked at each other, and we realized that for the cost of a 10-P call, Someone in the know with an American accent making believe they would meet him called her in February 88, set up this appointment, and for like almost no effort and no money, drove a wedge between two fairly significant researchers who could have really assisted each other in putting this thing together over nine years and instead created this fabulous fake misunderstanding yeah. but I was shaken. Yeah. Somebody may believe they were me and I mean this was calculated this was really something yeah. so um, that sort of brought the whole point home to me but frankly I have always been on record as saying that everything I knew went into that book and you know 99 and 99 44 percent that is true. Um, I wasn't holding back something when we went to press, you know, to drop one more bomb because I felt that would be dangerous. I did not want to get hurt. I did not want to be jerked around anymore. I did not want to jeopardize my health or safety or uh, peace of mind anymore than it had been. And um, I had one very simple rule the whole time I was working from the time I really got back into it, which was this is my life and I'm free to do with it what I want. I am single. Um, You know, I love my sisters and my parents and my family and my friends, but I'm going to push this thing as much as I can to realistic limits. However, if anybody, anybody approaches me and identifies themselves in absolutely credible ways that I can accept that they are you know, part of uh, that contingent yeah. folks. And they even suggest that if I don't get off this, that somebody I do care about will get hurt, or worse. I'm out of it. I'm out of it. Yeah. I will not be happy, but that is the secret. And I didn't tell anybody that, because, you know, when you tell one person, you tell everybody in a way. Yeah. So, um, that was the operating principle for me, and once the book was even in galleys, I had a tremendous peace of mind surge that I had not had in almost a decade. I knew that at least we were going to go into print and that I had no interest in you know, playing fake spy or something. And, you know, I've got a few more fabulous bits of, you know, nuclear information to drop on your heads, folks. Yeah. Um, and I've had a lot of peace of mind since and, you know, moved more back into being who I was before I met Larry um, and, you know, continue with what I've learned from these episodes and this extraordinary project and am more for it. But um, I wasn't going to fuck around with these folks on this. So oh, yeah. It was going to, you know, you, you play it straight. And I, you know, played by my own rules, and I, I never broke them. Now, that kind of goes to this next question I have Was the NSA. You seem pretty terrified about even researching them or writing them and that they were even involved in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess at that time, they weren't as well-known as they are now. That's correct. So what – um you spooked when you first started looking into this NSA thing? Because it sounds like you didn't even want to touch that. Yeah. Well, I didn't. And I wished – that that trail had led someplace else. Um, I'm a student of American history, and I was fairly as well studied about the NSA as most civilians can be, uh, with the exception of um, um, Bamford's The Puzzle Palace, which is uh, still one of the few absolutely outstanding books uh, on the subject. It's it's extraordinary. and. Mr. Bamford has written a follow-up book since. Um, I read everything I could on the NSA um, even before this. And once I had even a hint that Larry had been caught up in their net and that they were the ones who had confiscated his records and that his records were at Fort Detrick, Maryland, at their headquarters and that we would need lawyers and high-powered ones to even have a shot at going down there to meet with them, which I was not thrilled to do, that they were the great you know, uh, vacuumers up of phone calls and satellite communications, yeah. that um, they had checked me out on some level, that I was now known to them as a potential problem. Um, the NSA, from the start, has always had more power, uh, more chops, has been better funded than the CIA. Um, when they were created in November 52, when they went into effect, it was done so surreptitiously that they were put into effect at midnight election night when Eisenhower was elected. So the hope was if any rumor got out in even the bureaucracy, the regular military or government bureaucracy, it would be covered up by you know all the news of the new administration. And I was frightened. I was frightened that this was playing with the big boys. Um, Even when I worked on the manuscript at the end, when I discussed my feelings about the NSA, that was kept on a separate floppy disk. And when I delivered the manuscript on disk, um, that was delivered separately. And it was not integrated into the text till the very last minute because I didn't even want my publisher to know until the last minute that these were the guys that I intended to come down on the hardest uh, hardest at the end. My feeling was if I did it that way, my hope was they would probably say, okay, this is potentially embarrassing, but who's kidding who? How many people are going to read this book? 5,000, 10,000, who knows? Uh, We had no idea at the time it was going to be a bestseller in the UK. and even if they do, who's going to believe it? And even if they believe it, what are they going to do about it? And nobody knows we're even here anyway. Um, but they are the force to be reckoned with. And I thought to myself, if I make it as clear as I can, directly, indirectly, overtly, covertly, that I have just basically played my hand here. I have nothing else on them. Most of it is speculative anyway. I can't prove anything beyond what I've established in the book. Um, you know, I'm, I am a bug going up against a tank. Um, it's like trying to fight a howitzer with a spider web. I yeah. mean, I had all these wonderful analogies, and the best I could do was think to myself that um, if I do it this way, at least they'll know that... You know, I'm not going to be coming back at them. I've done whatever damage I can. Maybe I'll get a little begrudging respect, which I, I think I have gotten. Uh, I can't tell you why, but I think I have. And, you know, um, in the ultimate irony for me was, and I think I was accurate in this, it was a calculated risk, but I think I was accurate, that once I was on the public record with the whole story and what I felt was their involvement in it, that at that point, were anything to happen to me, were I to be hit by a bus or choke on a chicken bone or fall down a flight of stairs, it didn't matter if it was completely legitimate. There would be many people out there that would say, oh, you know, NSA killed them. Yeah. And the best thing they could do was ignore my ass after that. Yeah. And that's what they've done. And um, I'm at peace of mind uh, with that. But I absolutely maintain, still feel the same, and reiterate it in the revised version of the book, that they are deeply involved in uh, monitoring this phenomena, in helping to maintain the secret, and um, that there are or is a working group or office within the NSA, it's not the NSA per se, that is deeply involved in uh, the truth about UFOs, whatever that may happen to be. And I will. Nobody can convince me otherwise. And the other big bombshell that seemed to come out of this was the nuclear weapons being stored at, uh, at Ben Waters Bay. When did that, um, because it was, I remember uh, Larry, when he met with the NSA agents, that they were pretty, uh, they didn't want him to even go there. That's right. But then... Um, you can talk about the UFO, but do not talk about the nuclear weapons Yeah. treaty violation. When did and, that come, how... At some point that must have come out in the process of writing the book because by oh, the end yeah. of the book it's sort of like, um, it's, it's like a fact pretty much. Yes. So what, what's the story with how that came out into the public venue? Well, it came out very specifically um, after, let's see, 87, 88, 89, 88. By 94, you know, we were seven years into this and it was only in 94 for the first time that a British UFO research group invited us to speak in Great Britain. Up until then, our trips had only been research trips. But in 94, we went over and we did a marathon presentation before several hundred people in Nottingham um, for a uh, terrific grassroots organization there. And um, it was during that talk, spontaneously, without any planning, that Larry said, folks, I'm let in on something. And I felt myself go, oh, shit, what's up? (laughs) And he he just laid the whole thing out. And to the best of my knowledge, it was the first time that anyone, anyone, anywhere, certainly in civilian life, speaking before a civilian audience, said that in 1980, Great Britain um, was lied to by the United States, who had committed a mega-treaty violation by having a huge amount of nuclear weaponry in the United Kingdom without the permission or knowledge of the UK, or at least, you know, maybe they had tacit, quiet, secret, top-secret approval on some high level, but as far as the treaties went, uh uh-uh, it wasn't until 82 when uh, the Reagan-Thatcher love affair axis... uh, Allowed for us to bring in limited ordnance, which was MX uh, missiles, uh, uh, which were um, the ones that were flatbedded onto uh, trains, Uh, the idea being that they could be moved into tunnels, you know, in time of national emergency, as opposed to, Christ, all these field nuclear tactical weapons that could be Jeep launched and all this creepy stuff. And so Larry laid it all out there. And not long after that, we were ready to go back again. And that's when this totally Franz Kafka-esque story of Larry not just losing his passport, but the State Department's records of him temporarily uh, disappeared off State Department computers. Yep. Um, and that's when I took a deep breath and at the suggestion of our then literary agent, who I'm sorry we weren't able or didn't stay with us, uh, he said, you need an attorney and your criteria is... Number one, you've got to find somebody that will at least take you seriously. Number two, uh, somebody who has um, potential clout that he could actually do something about it. Number three, he's got to be somebody that will work pro bono because you need somebody that you cannot afford. (laughs) And my first question was, well, who do you suggest? And he said, "Uh uh-uh, you're the writer. Right now, Larry is totally preoccupied with this. He's freaked out about it appropriately, so you're going to have to deal with this. So... Basically, meditate on it and think of who you would like to be your lawyer and go after them. And as I recall, this was in the year of the OJ trial, and none of us were thinking very nice thoughts about attorneys. Yeah. And um, I thought to myself, Christ, I do know who I want to go after. And it was former Attorney General Ramsey Clark, who, bless his heart, um, worked with me um, directly um, in several meetings and took his time, uh, which I'm sure was probably $500 an hour at least at the time and gave it to us freely, met with me several times and met with me and Larry and helped us get that passport back in record time uh, with an apology. And uh, within weeks we were back in England doing some mischief again. But the whole nuclear um, thing came up rather spontaneously in 94. And um, the State Department had ultimately said uh, the reason for Larry's trouble, uh, and it was on computer, and it was read off the screen to him by um, the person that he spoke to on that conversation when he called State, was quote unquote, um, my passport has, uh, you know, is in the status that it's in for speaking out on sensitive defense issues in a public forum on foreign soil. And um, that's how that happened. Wow. Um, OK, so let me see here. Um, the book came out eight years ago. What's your reflections on the book um, and the reaction to the book, and, you know, just in general? You know, the yeah. book comes out. It's been a long time since the book came out. What's What's uh, the book sort of taken on a life of its own, I guess, at this yes. point. So what's well, that been like? Um. I'm very proud that we were able to complete it. Um, As you know, it did go on to become a bestseller in the United Kingdom. Um, It got wonderful reviews. Um, It had the honor of being reviewed in the Ministry of Defense's in-house monthly magazine. It got a very good review. Members of the ministry were recommended to read the book Um, in October 1997. It was the subject of direct confrontation between a member of parliament, uh, a former admiral of the fleet, and chief of staff of the Ministry of Defense, Peter Hill Norton, uh, recently deceased, uh, who went up against the then secretary for defense on the floor of parliament, referring to left at Eastgate by name and drawing questions directly from the book, which were posed to um, the secretary, who evaded all the answers appropriately. I have two letters from uh, Tony Blair's personal secretary confirming receipt of the book and stating that, um, as far as we're concerned, he has not read the book. Um, and if he does, I don't think they're going to tell us. Um, in the States, it was something of a disaster in that we found that we had gotten, um, through our very mediocre agent, a extremely uh, unscrupulous publisher who bought the book, Ultimately, for a tax loss, can you imagine? Huh. They bought the book to write it off to lose money. And we flipped and they said, "What are you going to do sue us? you know How do uh, they do that? Well, um, they absolutely broke a contract in a number of ways as far as promoting the book, uh, as far as making good on distributing the book, as far as making good on translating the book. Um, they lied to us about our royalties and it was not for several years after that until I was able to get an attorney who's been working with us now for four and a half years, and we are about to take their asses into court. And I hope we will have some peace of mind on that. Um, So that was a very frustrating thing. Um, Now let me just give you a side question here. You've you've, uh, touched a a thought here. Do you think they at all were, working at the best of anyone else to sort of bury the book? Mm. I didn't at first because it's not my nature. Larry did at first because it is his nature. <laughs> uh, at this point, I think it may well have been a very real possibility that they found out after the fact they bought a book that was not a flying saucer book, but potentially a very embarrassing book to aspects of the American government yeah. that maybe they shouldn't do anything that they didn't, maybe they should do whatever they could to make the book a non-success, where the book sold out of its first printing in the UK. Our publisher there, who I really liked and I think did a a very good job for small press to promote it, I think um, they were gotten to uh, in so many words. The book never went into reprint. Up until last year, it was not available at all in the United Kingdom, uh, even as an import. Um, It was very weird. And... Um, It had took me some years to realize, duh, maybe we really had stepped on some feet and um, that I should grow up and realize that um, there were hands in this that I felt uncomfortable about, but it wasn't a fluke that um, the book was so difficult to get in the UK and that it had basically been destroyed here. and partly for that reason, and partly because we have the 25th anniversary coming up, Larry and I decided early this year that we did want to get the book back into print. The rights had reverted to us at that point. In good. Yes, and I found a small press uh, in New York here that was interested in reprinting it and more in reprinting an updated version of it. And um, I'm working with them right now to do just that. And that new version of the book should be available sometime in December here and in the UK in perpetuity. Awesome. Well, this that interview will stay in print. This interview will probably be running around November, so they'll be able to right. pick it up, and hopefully they'll be able to pre-order it or just plain old. Just do yeah. It well, the way it's going to work, it's part of a new trend in publishing called print-on-demand, oh, really? where um, small presses—it's very hard to compete with the big guys, and. Yeah. For big presses, it's very prohibitive. You print, you know, a tremendous number of books by some super well-known author, you know, Bill Clinton's, well, you know, Bill Clinton's memoirs or Norman Mailer's new novel or whatever, and you often pay a huge advance and print huge numbers of books, and you're stuck with sometimes tens of thousands of copies that have to be remaindered or discounted, and you lose your shirt. Here. Um, The book will be listed in perpetuity at Amazon.com UK and U.S., Borders, uh, Barnes & Noble, etc. Any bookstore in the world can order it for you. But the way that we're able to compete is um, you won't see it in bookstores unless they really feel, gee, this thing is taking off on its own again and we want to have some in stock. Um, The name of the company is Cosimo, C-O-S-I-M-O. And that's important because otherwise there are still remaindered copies that you can order online, say at Barnes and Noble, of the uh, you know out-of-print version. But starting in December, you can get in touch with any book dealer in the world or any of the big websites and say, "I'd like the copy of UFO: at Escape published by Cosimo." And um, again, because it's print-on-demand, it's not like it's limited run and then goes into reprints. It simply will be available hypothetically forever in both countries. Yeah, and there's printing facilities in both countries. So um, as things stand right now, um, besides doing what I can to promote it, I'm very glad that we'll be seeing it, um, you know, referred to uh, again on the Sci-Fi Channel um, where Larry and I are interviewed and they show the book um, in December, as well as on the new History Channel documentary in December, There is a possibility, and I state just a possibility, because as of last year, NBC now owns a sci-fi channel. I have a meeting next week with individuals at NBC concerning their showing the sci-fi documentary in December. Oh, wow. And this has totally um, not happened yet, but I'll simply say it here, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, I'm meeting with folks next week also at NBC with the possibility that um, the NBC News Magazine Dateline uh, do a feature on this in December as well. Oh, awesome. So you expect a big media firestorm at least? Uh, I expect something, hope. yes. <laughs> I'm also going to be working as hard as I can to um, draw attention to this story in the 25th anniversary uh, with other American media. I'm doing what I can to get myself back on, you know, Art Bell and Coast to Coast and a number of other wonderful radio shows around the country as well as television hookups, cable, and network. Um, Also, I'll be spending, and as of this morning, it's definite because I just confirmed my ticket, I will be spending all of December in the U.K. again. And uh, Larry and I have right now about six different talks set up all over the country, and we'll both be back on location for the 25th anniversary in the woods there. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really great. Can you imagine? Jesus. So, <laughs> so, you've kept, have you, so I assume that you catch in touch with Larry. Has your relationship gotten better since you've both been sort of uh, <laughs> shackled from the great, of making the book? Yes, I'm very pleased to say yes. Um, you go through that kind of shit with somebody and you either never want to see him again or what you are left with is a really remarkable friendship. It's yeah. been through hell and high water and Um, You know, we really do care about each other a lot. I'm very happy to report he's married, has a wonderful son who's, uh, gosh, I guess close to five years old now. Um, Larry has lived in England for the past five years. He comes to the States once a year to visit. He met um, actually when we were doing our speaking tour in 97, He met um, an English woman that um, he ended up marrying, and she lives in Liverpool. So he has been a resident of Liverpool for about five years. And uh, I just spoke with Sue earlier in the day, and um, I'll be spending some of December with them, some of it with uh, our friends down in Suffolk, including Christmas. And uh, as things stand now, I think we have confirmations for talks in. Leeds, Birmingham, Manchester, Yorkshire, um, Hull uh, with several others pending right now. But um, we'll be doing our best to uh, raise consciousness about this all over the UK in December where you can bet it will once again spring into the news and onto television all over the place. I'm hoping that um, we can use that to... um, Wake Up Americans a bit more to it and um, get some interest back in gear here and give the book another life. I think so. I think, uh, well, I know a lot of people want to read the book and it's so hard to get a hold of right now. Yeah. I'll let you know, you know, specifically when it's definitely back in print. But as things stand right now, it looks like um, ideally uh, early December, it will be available for anybody to order again. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. yeah. Cause I It took me about a year to get a hold of it. So. Yeah. And actually, ironically enough, um, you you probably recognize this when you go to one of these UFO conferences. There's tables with books. Sure. That um, I, they must be just a group of people who go to all the conferences. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. But they have uh, they have just whatever UFO book you could ever ask for. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's And a huge number of books. And there was left at Eastgate. Oh, cool. First edition. Ah. Autographed I love it! By you! Oh no! Uh, I was psyched, yeah, and I didn't even notice the autograph till I got home. Cause oh, I, cool! I, I was leaping through it. Uh, I got home, I opened it up, and I was like, holy shit, this is autographed! Uh, I used to, I always, for years, I, I tried to always have stickers with Larry's signature on it to give out to folks who had, you know, had only mine. <laughs> and I'll, I'll try to have uh, one in gear. Um, I, I'm completely out of them now, but I'm to <laughs> have to do some more soon, and we'll certainly get one for you. That's uh, great. Oh, yeah. I, I'm really pleased that uh, you were able to find it for sure, especially oh, yeah. after the wonderful way that we got to meet. Yeah, I was psyched. Like, yeah. Um, Terrific. That's almost does it, for, that pretty mm-hmm. much does it for left at Gate questions. Yeah. So this is okay. a long uh, thing. The only other light-hearted question I had was uh, women and ufology. Is, how do you even, this is a terrible mix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a very so a good young, question. Can you give some advice to a young ufologist who uh, would like to find a young woman? Yeah, I would say gay. don't get into ufology to meet women. <laughs> um, I've noticed as, that. as you know from hanging out at the conferences, it's mostly guys. Yeah, And Occasionally, you know, there are women there, and, um, I, I think, as in all things, you careful. know, when you're looking <laughs> for, right, exactly, um, you know, um, people are people wherever you go, and, you know, you find romance in the strangest places sometimes and new friends, but, um, I'm amazed at, you know, the cross-section of the population this subject brings in. But the percentage of women is certainly less than men historically. I've met some wonderful women over the years who do have an interest in this, but at least as often as not, um, the women that I, I meet that I've been involved with really don't have much of an interest in it or do after the fact, because, oh, you know, it usually changes when you meet somebody one person in a subject that, you know, up until that point, you've never really given any thought to, or if you Mm -hmm. have, it's not particularly serious thought. Um, I remember um, in 2002, I spoke at a UFO conference. It was the National MUFON conference again, and um, it was in upstate New York in Rochester. And um, there was a representative um, from a Turkish UFO organization there who was speaking there. And... um, She's a, become a good friend of mine over the years, but um, her name is Esen, S E N Sekakara, which is uh, not a name you've ever heard before, but not terribly unusual in Turkey. And she was the talk of the conference. Not, I mean, she was extremely smart and very well spoken and knew her subject terrific. But she. Frankly, it was one of the most stunningly beautiful women that most of us had ever met. Just an extraordinary natural beauty and not affected and very down-to-earth and very accessible. But there were like packs of guys spending the weekend just sort of drooling in the corners. And, you know, oh, my God, it just we, – we couldn't stop you know, just making all these silly, nervous guy jokes about yeah, yeah. this is what we've all dreamt about for <laughs> years. And um, gee whiz, um, uh, you know, again, beauty is skin deep on a certain level, but wow, when it's there, it's extraordinary. Uh, but she's a total sweetheart and just reminded all of us eligible guys there that... You know, so many different types of women do take this subject seriously all over the world. Um, Last November, I had the great honor, privilege, and really amazing enjoyment of um, being one of the first um, non-Japanese to lecture on our subject um, for a national UFO organization in Japan. And it was just one of the most enjoyable UFO-related experiences of my life. Uh, I was there for a week. I delivered two papers at a national conference. Um, I had met one person, uh, their main translator, at um, that MUFON conference in '02, And um, she had first contacted me in 2000. Uh, she had actually read Left at Gate and said that Japanese were not only interested in this, but it reminded me that Larry had visited Japan in 1984. It was his first real UFO venture out of America. And um, for them, they take not just the subject seriously, but interestingly, the Rendlesham Forest incident, they consider certainly one of the seminal UFO interest, uh, cases of all time. Oh, wow. And they asked our permission to begin to publish parts of Left at Eastgate in Japanese. And I spoke with Larry about it. We both agreed instantly that not only would we be delighted for them to do this, but that we would not charge them anything in the interests of, you know, increasing international understanding. Yeah. And also in the hope of beginning to build up a following in Japan and get this into Japanese. So. Um, They have now been serializing the book for like five years on a quarterly basis in um, um, the Japan, UFO Report Japan, which is a wonderful publication in Japanese. And so by the time I got there last year, I really had a following. (laughs) And they were kind, lovely, wonderful people um, who some of them will be friends for the rest of my life and I look forward to my next trip over. And that, you know, and that the reason I, I kind of segued into this relative to women, where here in the States, it's usually men, you know, their adolescents up to like middle-aged guys mostly. In Japan, it's very different. It's almost exactly 50% women, 50% men that are seriously interested oh. in this. And they the range, the age range and socioeconomic range is much more interesting. They range from teenagers to people who are retired well into their 70s with extremely high percentages of um, professionals, professors, attorneys, medical professionals, doctors, etc. So I was very impressed uh, with them, with their organization, with how seriously they take the subject. they're very special folks, and um, I met some lovely women there who, um, you know, were very knowledgeable on the subject. But you know, via Japanese uh, publications and conferences, um, this is a worldwide phenomena, and there's a worldwide following. Nice. When are you going back? I'd love to see you share with you. I know. <laughs> well, I, the greatest honor for me, um, uh, I knew going over working for a Japanese American company, a certain amount about etiquette and. Um, you know, um, behavior and I, I had some basic Japanese. Also, uh, my late mother had been an executive with an icon corporation in America and had traveled in Japan and had many Japanese friends, was interested in Japanese culture. So I used all that for all it was worth. And I, I knew from my mom that and from my business friends that um, uh, Japanese do not take you know, American or foreign visitors home to meet their families. Uh, yeah. If you're there for business, even if they like you and it's cordial, you know you meet in restaurants, hotels, yeah. conference centers, whatever. And I was brought home and um, kind of adopted by my host family. Um, They're two wonderful kids and. Uh, they made it clear as I was leaving and we were all close to tears, it was very emotional, that they did hope to bring me over again in a couple of years and God knows it's expensive. Um, you know, to bring me over for a week, fly me over, give me a nice honorarium, feed me, put me up, um, tour me around uh, the area for several days, it cost them thousands. Oh wow. And it's a little organization they saved for years to bring me over. Oh wow. But um, they would like to bring me over again. Again, it may be some years, but they said, next time you come over, though, you stay with us. And I thought to myself, this is the ultimate compliment. So yeah. I am very flattered by this. And for what it is worth, um, when you have your website at a point where you um, would be, you know, like to make contact with these folks, I will be glad. Uh, to put you in touch um, with their main translator and speaking person and invite them, you know, um, I think one of the things um, that they really appreciate my doing is I've sort of kind of cut a path and made introductions to significant uh, American and British researchers, uh, including Nick Pope and Tim Good and Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs and things and encouraged them to give the Japanese permission to translate selected articles and papers. And, um, you know, for you to say, you know, you have my permission and my best wishes if you would like to create a link to my site from yours or to translate any of these interviews that I post, um, they do appreciate that. And that could initiate um, a relationship that ultimately, We'll develop a, a, a body of friends and colleagues over there for you that you can visit at some point in the future. And it's, it's one of the wonderful things about traveling. Um, I love to travel, and um, I fell in love with it when I was in my early 20s at a time when Americans could travel more freely to places than we can now and really wasn't much more than a kid with a pack on my back. But I was on the road a lot and traveled in places you wouldn't believe, including several trips to Iran, several trips to oh, wow. Pakistan. I've I've traveled all over Afghanistan. I've been up to the Tibetan border, just about in Nepal. I've been all over India and Russia and some of the weirder corners of the world. Um, and it's one of the things I really love. Where the work itself, again, I don't love as much as I'm obsessed with it. I do love people um, often, and I love traveling. And so, for me, the biggest perks on the job have been some of the people I've met over the, well, almost three decades. Yes. And some of these wonderful places I've been able to visit that I might not have ever had a chance to visit if I didn't know one person, you know, and just get that hook and swing over and develop more people. And um, England has become a second home, almost needless to say, over the past 18 years. And um, I'll always go back there. And... I'm very proud of the fact that I have friends all over the country and, you know, they are always welcome here and in many cases I am often welcome there. And um, that's good stuff, that's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you've, you've traveled quite a bit too. I remember in the book you detail the trip to Nice. Yeah, that yeah. was great too. Oh my God, to get paid to go to the Riviera uh, Ugh, uh, and talk about UFOs. I geez. know, it must have been quite a trip. It was great. So from your experience in uh, in Japan, do you yeah. think uh, the stigma is less of a stigma? Much less, really. Much less. In fact, um, uh, Jun Kato, who is uh, the very dynamic uh, director of uh, uh, the um, organization of UFO Research Japan. Um, his day job is he's um, a very respected um, advertising executive, wow. but he's extremely dynamic. He's a good writer, terrific speaker. I don't have to understand Japan, Japanese to know that he's a wonderful speaker. I've heard him speak. Um, he has done, oh gosh, man, a great deal of Japanese television and radio appearances, and he's published articles all over Japan in a lot of straight major newspapers and magazines and not just, you know, quote-unquote UFO publications. Also, I have a theory on this, and I may be completely off base, but because Japan, in a certain way, is more open to the impossible, the insane, the absolutely unthinkable reality of having been the subject of having two nuclear bombs dropped on it. Yeah. I think that is one of the things that made the Japanese such pioneers in science fiction filmmaking. We joke about most Japanese science fiction films, the goofy, you know, Godzilla spin-offs from the 50s. But the fact is, the Japanese are very open-minded on these things. And UFOs? Sure. Why not? They even have, there, there are probably several hundred political parties, probably are in the States too, mostly small ones, But for, gosh, I think at least two decades, there has been a UFO political party that has campaigned on trying to, you know, the central issue is truth about UFOs. Um, This is not a joke there. And um, people that are into the wink-wink, nudge-nudge reality of it are at least numbered uh, or um, maybe outnumbered by the folks that are open-minded enough to say, yeah, maybe, why not? Um, I'm interested. I take it seriously. Uh, I was so interested to learn um, when I visited there the percentage of people in my audience who were distinguished university professors, were um, doctors, uh, respected attorneys, um, highly successful business people, um, was truly phenomenal. Um, And through my translator, of course, the questions that I got over the time that I was there and we did a big skywatch together as well, were extremely well thought out and articulate. There is a streak of the Japanese character that is somewhat mystical, and that is, I think, understandable, rooted in the Shinto tradition that they are, but they're also very pragmatic and straight-thinking, and um, they're a perfect example of a country where um, you don't have to, you know, act like a silly nervous jerk and make fun or, you know, um, you know, just wonder what to say or whether the person is crazy or not. Yeah, this could be true, too. I want to know more about it. Yep. Sounds so that's very place. healthy, very healthy like that, I thought. That's great. Yeah. That's very encouraging. I, I agree. I If only we'd learn the lesson. Um But it ain't going to happen with um, these very scary people leading us. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Now, did you get an indication of, um, Probably one of the more mysterious countries for as far as ufology goes. That would be the Chinese ufology because mm. uh, they're so close. The doors are so close. Do you get, since uh, Japan's so close to China, uh, geographically wise, cultural somewhat, um, did you get any indication of what's going on in China with ufology? Well, I did, and it didn't come from the Japanese. It's been um, a pet subject of mine for years. And... Um, when I first got into this in the later 70s, of course, who knew what the hell was going on over there? We now know that they were having the same basic ratio of sightings, near as we can put together as we were. Um, You know, it's a worldwide phenomenon. No reason that wouldn't be the case. Uh, But the most interesting thing has happened over the last few years as um, their very unique brand of communism has been slowly melting down into this weird socialist, capitalist hybrid, that um, even when it was more rigidified, there were UFO research organizations around the country, but they were not open to lay people. You had to have at least an engineering degree to qualify, and in these more quasi-liberal times the last half-dozen years or so, these organizations have now proliferated all over China. Wow. But that basic rule is still in place, which is doubly interesting. Um, It's not like MUFON, where if you're interested in UFOs, you send them 50 bucks and you're a member and you get the journal. You have to establish yourself as somebody um, with a credible professional background, preferably in engineering, Um, and they are very analytical about it. They are completely non-mystical. For them, it is nuts and bolts and the possibility of beings from other planets. Um, But it is now wide open, and there are many Chinese UFO journals. Um, Even now, most of us here, even if we're interested in it, have not a lot of access to it. But it's something if you have um, a colleague or a friend or somebody uh, who is fluent in Cantonese or Mandarin or one of the basic dialects, and who is fairly facile online, um, there are quite a number of Chinese UFO organizations represented by serious websites all over the country now. Again, we don't hear about this, but um, there it's now, you know, yeah, no stigma. You're interested in UFOs, you know. You qualify and you can join a good UFO organization and you will compare notes with your colleagues and study and learn what you can. So doubly intriguing and again, totally unique, not like any place else, especially with this focus on um, wanting members who are uh, technologically backgrounded and not just interested folks. Yeah, So very interesting, yeah. It is, and as China acquires uh, more power and clout in the world as they are continuing to do, I think this will probably become even looser and uh, better organized and, um, you know, more prevalent throughout Chinese society. Um, I can't say it for a fact, but my sense is that they also um, do not have our typical Western reaction of, oh, you know, little green men, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, They are extremely motivated people. who value education and knowledge tremendously. And it just makes good sense that they would be interested in uh, an anomalous topic like this. Uh, Who wouldn't be an an open or semi-open or opening society if the government is not going to get in your way or, you know, get silly on your head about it? Yeah. All right. Thanks for going so long. Oh, that's okay, Tim. glad to do it. You ask intelligent, perceptive questions, and I've been looking forward to doing this with you. Awesome.
0: Um, Okay, uh, just to touch on uh, probably the last topic here
1: tonight, um, that would be, uh, I read one of your, uh, you sent me some articles and stuff that you'd written, and I knew previously that you'd worked with uh, ufocity.com. Yes. And, uh, you said you'd been in the field for probably about 30 years, right? So, that what you said? On. I think my interest really started to, um, explode uh, in the mid 70s. Yeah, pretty much. So, obviously, you were in ufology way before the internet came along. So, yeah. what was your perception of, uh, of the Internet when it first came along with regards to ufology, and how do you think uh, you've seen the Internet evolve as a tool for research in ufology yeah. and also as a hindrance to research? Well, first I have to say I'm very much an, an analog thinker. Um, I'm being dragged into the digital world um, okay. where, you know, the difference between 10 and 15 years is – Tremendous at this point in you know human development, um, if you were exposed to computers in high school or elementary school or even university, you're in a very different place than people who are so called adults, and you know then we get introduced to them. Um, I was fascinated by it; it seemed impossible to me; it seemed like something out of Star trek. Um, I did not go I was not early online um, I didn't even start to... When I started working on Left at Escape, believe it or not, in 1987, I never even considered that I'd be working on a word processor. I had an IBM Selectric typewriter. <laughs> and within a year, of course, I realized, oh, my God, you know, i, I how do people write books on typewriters? This is amazing. You've got yeah. this thing called word processing. They've got something called cut and paste. It's like I used to really do with scissors and tape, you know, and, you know, (laughs) no joke, and writing small and, you know, retyping and all this crap. Um, But it wasn't until I began to work for a multimedia company in Midtown Manhattan here in 98, um, where my boss, uh, the business had nothing to do with UFOs, but My two bosses had read Left at Eastgate, were very interested in the subject as private citizens, um, very convinced of a government cover-up of the topic, and brought me in to develop a part of their business that would deal in UFO-related information and getting it out on the net. And um, it was not a success in terms of creating a viable part of their company that would make them money, but the net result was that we established something called UFO City that I founded with their backing and their finance. Uh, Essentially, it was an information-related website where I took 20-plus years of goodwill in the research community and had stringer reporters and people helping me find new stories all over the world. Um, And over the five and a half years that UFO City ran and closed down uh, last year, I posted thousands of stories, and on a number of them, I was the first one to break the story. I was very ethical, but handful of times that I went to press with something and then found out that it was specious, unlike a lot of sites, I made a big point of going online again and correcting the That's story, good. yeah yeah, and um oh boy, um, I was very proud of it um. It took up a tremendous amount of time and energy, but I essentially was editor-in-chief of a -a five-day-a-week UFO newspaper information service and, um, you know, linked up with, gosh, hundreds of sites around the world related to the subject. As far as UFOs and the Internet, when I first, first, first started to explore the Internet I was shocked that the largest concentration of websites were all pornographic and that is in fact true. Believe it or not, the second largest proliferation of early websites, and this is an informal demographic but I think it's fairly accurate, was UFOs and the paranormal. I mean, they were not nearly as many as the porn sites which never really interested me. I think pornography is kind of sad more often than not and empty stuff um, for people that are, you know, just sexually frustrated and have poor social skills. (laughs) Um, But I was fascinated. Um, You know, if you go online, for example, and you type in UFO, you come up with more than a million hits of sites. And um, I'm amazed, you know, if you type in UFO and then you type in my name, how many unbelievable references come out now um, at this point in time. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. It actually was quite shocking to me when I realized that. But I saw the best and the worst. Um, There's so much absolute, total, specious bullshit, and there are also so many decent people working so hard to put together quality information and get it out there to the rest of the world, it is the best and worst of us, you know, electronically translated in a way, um, out there in cyberspace. Um, I'm fascinated by it at the same time as um, I spend, I mean, not nearly as much time on the Internet uh, chasing down stories and things now as I did when it was my business for five and a half years. Yeah. Um, I am a book person, and from the time I was very young, I was brought up to love reading and love books, and as I speak to you, I'm sitting in my library room here. I'm surrounded by Wall's of books. I don't know how big my library is, but I'm sure I have several thousand volumes, and I certainly have, uh, um, I don't know how big it is compared to other people that collect books on UFOs. and are involved in the field or just, you know, committed bibliophiles with this as a specialty. But I have literally hundreds of volumes um, on UFOs and, um, I don't know, I'm sure several hundred pounds of reports and journals and, uh, you know, um, research papers and all that on the subject and encyclopedias, et cetera. and I always encourage people who are interested in this subject or just anybody in general that will listen, to build your library. Um, I love movies. It's great having a nice DVD library. Um, my brother-in-law is the one in our family is building the real big one. I've got a little one. But for me, um, the world of books will never um, be displaced by the Internet, no matter how much information there is. Um, There is a tendency, and it's very easy to fall into, to do things in a half-assed way and not be able to fully back them up, where a published book that has been researched and uh, fact-checked and spell-checked and updated can often be much more valuable than alleged late-breaking news and developments from a so-called news and information service. I realize more and more that, um, you know, the future is about electronically transmitted information, but um, I think it'll be a very sad day if humanity ever reaches a point where these wonderful paper and board rectangles disappear out of our world. Um, They're wonderful things. I think of them as dear friends, and, um, you know, many of them I'm looking at spines and remembering stories in the books as well as when I got the book or who I was with when I got the book or... Yeah, they all have a story of their own. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the Internet is, of course, very important. Its place in UFO studies cannot be understated. And at the same time, um, we're in a world where um, fewer and fewer people read. And unfortunately, we have a chief executive who sets the worst example of any president in history, as far as I'm concerned. He doesn't read. Um, um, But the fact is, um, you know, at whatever point in our lives that you say to yourself, well, I've learned everything I can, you have actually stopped breathing or you might as well. Um, We should all be students of the things that fascinate us for as long as we're conscious. um, It also, I think, keeps you... Ageless on a certain level, you know, your body ages, but as long as your mind is agile and you know you're in the swim with people you share interests with, um, you know, life is rich and adventures are right around the corner, and you never know what's going to happen next or who you're going to meet next, and uh, it does keep it very exciting. Um, also, the place of like where we met UFO conferences. Yeah, I don't care, you know, how many. Uh, great documentaries you have in your DVD library or, you know, how many cable channels you have that show UFO uh, stories or, um, you know, even how many books you read on it. There is, once again, no substitute for making contact with the real people and a nice long weekend uh, emblematic of when we met at the X conference uh, where you can just hang with folks who are just getting involved or who dwarf you and their interest and, you know, knowledge of a certain subject it just enriches your life. Um, my next big one is next, no, um, beginning in November, the third annual crash retrieval conference in Nevada, and I'm particularly flattered to be speaking there for a third, for yeah, the third year in a row because, yeah, I think I'm the only speaker they've had that has never really spoken about crashes and retrievals, and uh, um, Ryan and uh, his dad Bob Wood. Um, uh, wonderful researchers and interesting interesting men who have organized the conference um, have flattered me tremendously by basically saying, yeah, even though you're not on topic, you know, your subjects are interesting and you do good papers and um, come on back. So um, I'll be speaking yet once again on non-crash and retrieval (laughs) subject and um, one that is sort of an idiot child of ufology. It has to do with, um, uh, I think, certainly one of the most brilliant scientists in history and one of the most misunderstood, uh, whose work took him directly into UFO studies and who um, almost nobody in ufology is aware of, and if they are, it's in a very distorted way, and his name was Dr. Wilhelm Reich. And oh, wow. Uh, he was um, Freud's first assistant in part of the 1920s broke away and pioneered a science about how energy functions. And it took him into um, human neuroses, um, cancer formation, um, political um, behavior, uh, weather systems, and um, um, weather modification, and ultimately um, ufology. And he was extraordinarily courageous and very insighted and... um, so i'm going to be delivering a paper on his work in the area and uh, that's a particular interest of mine um studied him on and off for many years and, uh, and i'm honored to have an opportunity to present uh, a paper on his work at such a good conference that's great yeah
0: and um just bringing it
1: all back home yeah. here uh from from discussion of the internet uh, one of the good things about it is, is situations like this where we can <laughs> bring a uh, bring actual interviews to, to people, um, you know, they, can, they don't have to dial up their radio. And it's totally cool. And not only am I excited about it uh, and that there are folks out there doing it like you are, but because of your particularly good questions and you've become a very good interviewer, Tim, oh, thank you. Um, I want, once you post this, Please send me the URL so I can do an emailing to um, folks out there on my mailing list and give them an opportunity to hear what I think is probably, uh, oh, definitely an outstanding interview um, that I'm always going to be proud to know is on the record as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the
0: opportunity, and uh, I think everyone's going to love it.
1: Hey Tim, my pleasure. And
0: one more time, let them know the book's coming out in uh, December. We have right. Reissue will be in December, and. Hopefully, by the time they're listening to this, they can uh, either pre-order it, or they'll know to order it, or it'll all yeah. be on, and they can get it, and they definitely should, because it's by far one of the best UFO books
1: I've read in a very long time, Thanks, and it's a human drama. It's a UFO story. Yeah. It sort of pulls the curtain back behind what really happens uh, for someone who goes through the experience, and then takes the experience all the way to the book form, yeah. and, and what happens to his buddy who he pulls in to write the book, which is you. And then you know who expects that to happen to them? That whole thing. And I sure didn't. It's a great book, so I hope everyone listening, if they haven't read it already, I'm sure they're going to want to after this discussion, because um, there's going to be there's still be peaks anyway, and I think it'll make a great supplement to the book too for anyone who already has read it. Thanks, Tim. So thank you so much for the interview, and um, that should probably do it. You're most welcome, and I'll look forward to keeping in touch.
0: There you have it, folks. That was Peter Robbins. Big, huge thanks to Peter Robbins for appearing on Ben All of America Audio Season 1. I think, really, this was one of the best interviews we had in the series so far, and I was just really happy with it, and I hope you all were, too, and I hope you really enjoyed it, and I hope you come back for more great interviews that we have coming down the line. Big thanks to Leslie and Chiron of beenallofamerica.com for your continued support and help with the audio series. I also want to give a shout-out and big thanks to two particular websites that have been instrumental in helping us get the word out on Banal of America Audio Season 1. First of all, The Anomalist. and You can find them under www.anomalist.com. Anomalist.com, and The Daily Grail. And you can find them under dailygrail.com. D a I-L-Y-G-R-A-I-L dot com. They've both been extremely helpful in getting the word out on Banal of America Audio every week. uh, Posting some information about it and linking us up. So a lot of people have found us through those websites and I want to give a thanks to them for their help. And thank you to everyone who's been listening to Banal of America Audio. I want to also remind you that we have a very special bonus edition of Banal of America Audio available at America.com. This week we posted it on November 1st, it is a hour and 20-something minute discussion with Webster Tarpley on the Scooter Libby indictment, war with Iran, synthetic terror, terror drills used as cover for synthetic terror, and that's available as I speak at com. And of course, next week, November 12th, 2005, we will have as our very special guest, Grant Cameron, one of the most respected minds in ufology. He's been tracking the UFO presidential connection for quite some time. He's a native Canadian who's done just a wealth of research and has amazing opinions on a host of topics. That's going to be another two-part interview for Banal of America Audio Season 1 next week, the first half of that interview, where we discuss Grant's introduction into the world of ufology and some of the key players in Canadian ufology over the years. And you'll be able to find that at binallofamerica.com on November 12th, 2005. And in case you didn't get the address yet, it's www.binallofamerica.com. I hope you check it out and and dig into what binallofamerica.com has to offer. And so, until you hear from me again, this is Tim Binall saying so long, everybody.